What's up everybody? Welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I've got a great show for everybody today. We're going to talk about six different companies that I've followed over the course of the podcast and each of them has had a recent update. So I want to get into it, talk about what's going on about each one of them and uh, see what we can look forward to. So the six companies are BioXL Therapeutics, TG Therapeutics, Curis, Checkpoint Therapeutics, and CareFarm is the last one, but I want to talk about it in relation to Sierra Oncology and the recent buyout that it received from GSK. So that's the show for today, and before we get into it, I do want to thank everybody. appreciate all the support and all of the engagement. Please continue to hit the like button and to reach out to me, whether it's over email at matthewlapaude at gmail.com or at Twitter and my handle is at Matthew Lepard. So with that, let's get right into it. And the first company I wanna talk about is BioXL Therapeutics. And they announced FDA approval of Igalmi, I believe that's what the molecule is now called, which is a sublingual film for acute treatment of agitation associated with schizophrenia or bipolar one or two disorder in adults. And this came as quite a surprise, I think. The company was very coy on their last earnings call about whether or not they've been in labeling discussions with the FDA, and they just shot down those questions immediately, saying that they wouldn't talk about uh, any ongoing potential decisions that were coming from the FDA. So I don't think that this was totally priced in, and the stock did end up moving up quite a bit on this news, and then it sold off very quickly. So to talk about what the press release said, it's the first and only FDA-approved orally dissolving sublingual film for mild, moderate, or severe agitation in patients with schizophrenia or bipolar 1 or 2 disorder. Up to 25 million agitation episodes for these two patient populations occur in the U.S. annually, and they're planning a U.S. commercial launch in Q2 of 2022. And I think as of the last year or so, the mantra was that smaller biotech companies can't commercialize therefore after the immediate pop in the stock on an fda approval it's sell the news and that is indeed what we saw with bioxl this is a, a chart from the last few weeks and we saw a nice run up into the pdufa date and then here we got this big can this big wick on the candle where it touched around 24 i wish i had gone out there but i wasn't quick enough on the trigger and then we've seen like eight red days in a row, or there's one green day here, but largely the company sold off. And I think they recently did a financing round, a non-dilutive financing round so that they can fund the operation, which is gonna need a lot of it in order to get any kind of commercial success here. So I uh, took a position around 21 and ended up selling the entire position at 21 because I had a feeling that this green to red transition was going to occur, and that is indeed what happened. So it's good the company got an approval, but unfortunately they have to now deal with the problems associated with commercialization. And I wanted to touch quickly on the catalyst for the rest of the year. The other reason why I sold was that I didn't see a number of really strong catalysts, and maybe that could change if they do get some pretty good data from their immuno-oncology program. But the one that I was also excited about was major depressive disorder, but they had some questionable data uh, earlier in the year. And then they do have the Alzheimer's disease program, but that's just started. So, you know, the MAA submission to the EMA isn't super exciting for me. Um, and then dealing with commercialization 
is usually pretty problematic. So I'm going to be keeping an eye out for the immuno-oncology program for now uh, on the sidelines. And then as these other neuroscience programs develop, maybe I'll take another position. But for me right now, I'm just going to watch and see how the story plays out. Many biotech startups don't think that they have the time or money to protect their data. Without a dedicated IT team, data management is everyone's problem. Scientists find themselves redoing work and carrying out tasks outside of their expertise. Management finds themselves struggling to find funding and meet regulatory requirements. Don't let your company set itself up for failure. InfoPathways provides data management, cybersecurity, and technology compliance services for life science firms of any size. InfoPathways specializes in clean rooms, vivariums, GMP or GLP compliant facilities, as well as BSL 1 through 4. No environment or regulation is too complex for InfoPathways. For more information, go to InfoPathways.com or call 410-751-9929 to learn more. And it's definitely something that is outside my expertise. I want to get to the science. So if you're a biotech startup, think about using InfoPathways for all of your IT needs. Go to infopathways.com or call 410-751-9929 and I want to thank them so much for being a sponsor for the show. Moving on, I want to talk about TG Therapeutics. And this is a company that I've covered in the past and then I also had the CEO Michael Weiss on the show twice to talk about the progress that the company's made. And since those interviews, the company's had a few setbacks, mostly associated with the FDA. And so I'm going to read the latest press release that we heard from the company, and it is that TG Therapeutics announces voluntary withdrawal of the BLA SNDA for U2 to treat patients with CLL and SLL. And for those who don't remember, Uconic has been approved for marginal zone lymphoma as well as follicular lymphoma, and they were currently under review for approval in CLL as well as SLL, and this is a much larger indication. So there was a lot of excitement around them getting this CLL approval and being able to reach a larger patient population, which right now wasn't really possible with just MZL and FL. But what we heard here, and I'll just briefly read this. I know it's a lot of text, but these details are important. In addition, the company has announced that it has voluntarily withdrawn Uconic from sale for the approved indications of adult patients with marginal zone lymphoma who received one prior anti-CD20-based regimen and for the treatment of adult patients with follicular lymphoma who received at least three prior systemic therapies. So they're not just withdrawing the BLA for CLL, they're pulling the drug totally from the market. And then this bullet point, Mr. Weiss continued, while we had hoped to bring you two to patients with CLL, this will now permit us to focus our attention, passion, and energy to building out our multiple sclerosis and autoimmune platform. With our ublituximab BLA pending for patients with relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis and a PDUFA goal date of September 28th, we are excited about the possibility of bringing ublituximab to patients with RMS. If approved, we believe the differentiated profile of lituximab with its one-hour infusion will be welcomed by the MS community. So based on this news, the stock traded from around $9 or $1.5 billion market cap down to $7.5 or $1.2 billion market cap. I think its bottom was like $6.5 and then in the last couple of days it's since traded up from there. But just a pretty rough go for the company since the 
evolving story has been happening with the BLA submission for CLL and SLL. And there were some rumblings of issues going on with PI3K inhibitors in general. I think there was some negative decision for MEI Pharma that had another PI3K. The FDA did something else to, um, I believe it was Gilead's PI3K. You'll have to check. But then the issue specifically with U2 was a difference in overall survival with one of their trials. And so I'm going to read what that issue was from the company. And they say here that overall survival is designated as a secondary endpoint in the Unity CLL protocol, but was not part of the primary analysis in accordance with the study's statistical analysis plan agreed upon via SPA, and therefore was not analyzed or included in the BLA or SNDA. Additionally, the study was not powered for overall survival. As part of the ongoing review of the BLA and SNDA, the FDA requested an early analysis of OS in the Unity CLL trial. In the first analysis, using the cutoff date of September of 21, there was an imbalance in favor of the control arm with a hazard ratio of 1.23. However, based on the ad hoc nature of the analysis, approximately 15% of patients had missing or outdated survival data. So based on this FDA request, the company agreed to give this preliminary interim analysis and it favored the control. Even though it wasn't a perfect analysis, the study wasn't powered for it, and it was designed as a secondary endpoint. Based on this, though, it raised a lot of questions for the FDA. So the company goes on and says further, when excluding deaths related to COVID-19, the two arms were approximately balanced, hazard ratio of 1.04. In February of 2022, the company submitted updated overall survival data with the same September 21 cutoff date, but with reduced missing data and additional OS events, which showed an improvement from the previously reported OS data. Neither the original preliminary OS results nor the updated preliminary OS results were statistically significant. So when this happened, it gave some hope to investors that, oh, the quick interim analysis giving a hazard ratio of 1.23 was a insufficient analysis and that the company has now collected more data. They filled in the gaps here and the hazard ratio is actually 1.04. So this gave investors a lot of hope that at the ODAC meeting, which was coming up, an advisory committee meeting for the treatment of U2 in CLL, they would see this data and realize that there's nothing to be worried about when it comes to overall survival. Now, what precipitated, I believe, the voluntary withdrawal here is what I'm going to share right now, and it is that pursuant to a recent information request made by the FDA, updated OS data were collected that showed an increasing imbalance in favor of the control arm differing from the improved results provided to the FDA in February of 2022. Based on these new data, the company decided to withdraw the pending BLA SNDA for U2 to treat CLL, SLL, and accordingly, the ODAC meeting will be canceled. So this hope that we had in February of 2022 was shattered because they had to provide more information to the FDA from an information request and this data showed that there was actually an increased imbalance in favor of the control arm. So we really don't know what's going on with this data. There's obviously some sort of confusion between the company and the FDA. And the settlement here is that TG is just going to voluntarily withdraw it. So I assume that the imbalance does favor the control arm and it's just not going to work out. They don't assume that they're going to get a positive decision from ODAC. 
and they might have problems with Uconic on the market as it is today. So very unfortunate to see all cancer patients that were hoping to get a benefit here are no longer going to. The FDA has scheduled the ODAC meeting for April 21, in which it plans to discuss the appropriate approach for PI3K inhibitors in general. And this includes Uconic, but the company's withdrawn the BLA and Uconic from the market in general. So the company is shifting exclusively to an MS company. If successful, the drug Ublituximab, which is their anti-CD20 antibody, will be the third to market for relapsing multiple sclerosis. And they're going to be competing against two other drugs in this specific space, and not in the MS space in general, but specifically in the anti-CD20 space. Roche's Acrevis is the juggernaut here with revenues of $5 billion in 2021, and this is up 20% year over year. So I don't know how that market share is comparing to other drugs in the RMS space, but up 20% is pretty impressive. And then Novartis's Casimta was approved, I think a year ago or so, and their Q4 revenue for 2021 was 147 million with 2021 revenues of 372 million. So still a slow ramp up for Casimta, but it is starting to get some of that market share. TG hopes to compete in this market largely on price. That's what I understood from my interviews with Michael Weiss, but there's some other differentiators here. The dosing is different, so it's a one hour infusion for Ublituximab compared to two or more hours for Ocrevus. I think they recently got approval to do a two hour infusion, but most patients now are at a three or so hour infusion. And then this also compares to Consimta, which is a subcutaneous monthly injection that patients have to give in order to maintain their relapse rate. We also heard on the conference call on April 18th that there's an absence of breast cancer risk with ublituximab. And I suppose this compares favorably to Acrevis or Casimta, but I haven't looked into it too much. And I hadn't really heard this value proposition, but I suppose the company's focus on ublituximab is that they want to look for all the value propositions that they can provide to doctors to show why it's differentiated from the existing technologies on the market. So that's something that's interesting, and I wonder if it will have an effect on the decision for doctors to prescribe it. In terms of other oncology programs that exist with U2, Mr. Weiss said that they are going to be paused, and this is based off of the April 18th conference call, and unfortunately there were a number of them. So there was a U2 plus Venatoclax, U2 plus Abrutinib, and U2 plus TG1701. So all of these are going to be paused, probably canceled if the company is firmly going to cancel or stop all development and commercialization efforts for U2. And it's unfortunate because it's just a lot of shareholder value there that is gone. So they're going to focus exclusively on MS. And I think until the dust settles, uh, that's all we have to go off of. And the company is going to hope to get a successful PDUFA in the fall. And depending where the company trades, it might be a buy. But even at $1.2 billion market cap, I think a lot of that market cap was on the assumption that they could get an approval in CLL. And apparently now the market is revaluing that and the $1.2 billion on the hopes of an approval with Ublituximab and RMS is reasonable. So I'm going to wait and see on the sidelines and see what happens. But uh, it's unfortunate. I don't know if as a class the PI3Ks should be totally discounted, but it looks like the FDA is not impressed with that. And the confusion here about the overall survival imbalance 
really did no favors for the company in this one. So it's unfortunate to see, but hopefully they'll get a positive result from the PDUFA in the back half of the year. Moving on, I want to talk about another FDA thing that's going on. And we recently heard that the FDA lifted the partial clinical hold on the Magrolimab studies in MDS and AML, which is the anti-CD47 drug that Gilead has, and this happened on April 11th. And the reason why this is significant is that for those who remember what magrolimab looked like from a safety perspective, there were a ton of anemia and thrombocytopenia problems that were there, specifically related to anti-CD47. The fact that it took this long for the FDA to put a clinical hold, I think people thought that they were out of the woods here, but they went ahead and did that on January 25th of 2022. So what is that, three months? And the hold was lifted. So they're not going to be able to restart enrollment immediately for the pivotal studies. The patients in the phase three MDS enhanced study were able to continue taking the drug. So that wasn't affected by this. And that's pretty important because there's a planned interim analysis readout expected in 2023. So these programs that are really first in class for CD47 are going to be able to continue. And this is important because, well, for me, because I'm holding ALX Oncology stock and they're another CD47 drug in the space, but Magrolimab is really going to set the bar when it comes to safety and efficacy. So the more data we see from Magrolimab, it makes it easier for us to anticipate how well another CD47 has to do. Gilead has a number of hematology trials that are later phases, as well as earlier phases solid tumor trials. So I'm pretty excited to see how those pan out. And of course, we saw that there was a acquisition by Pfizer for the company Trillium that had a CD47 drug. And we've also heard some rumblings about the company IMAB being acquired. And it's a Chinese company that has another CD47 that's starting to get some interest. So I think this bodes very well for ALX Oncology. I'm also holding Shattuck Labs, regrettably. Uh, they have a different sort of technology, but it does have a target as CD47. But for this, I'm mostly interested in the follow-on effects to the company Curis. And the reason for that is that Curis recently was issued a partial clinical hold for the take-aim lymphoma study of emivucertib, and that was formerly called CA4948. And so what the press release reads here, and this happened about a month ago, that the US FDA placed a partial clinical hold on the company's take-aim lymphoma study the take-aim lymphoma studies of phase 1-2 open-label dose-escalating trial investigating emavucertib in patients with B-cell malignancies. While the partial hold on the take-aim lymphoma study is in place, no new patients will be enrolled, and current study participants benefiting from treatment may continue to be treated at doses of 300 or lower after being reconsented. So this is good news. The FDA isn't that concerned since they're allowing the company to continue to treat patients. And this is similar to what we saw in the Gilead situation, so I think that's good. And then consistent with previous notification, FDA is requesting additional safety, efficacy, and other data relating to emivucertib, including data related to rhabdomyolysis and the company's determination of the recommended phase two dose for emivucertib. And so on this news, the company traded from $2.30 a share or a market cap of $230 million down to $1.20 a share. I think that's where it closed around there today on April 20th, giving them a market cap of only 110 million. And I believe their cash is around 120 million right now. So they're trading below cash after this data. But 
if we look at the safety signals that came out here, and I'm highlighting them here, we see that the 300 milligram bid dose, the most significant safety signals were phosphokinase increase, only 3%, lipase increase at 7.7%, there was one rhabdomyolysis case at 3.8%, and some hypotension or gastrointestinal uh, hemorrhage, but these are very low, you know, 38 to 7.7%. And as we get to the higher doses, we can see here that there's more rhabdomyolysis. In the 400 milligram dose, we have 11% getting rhabdomyolysis, and then uh, one out of three patients in the 500 milligram dose getting rhabdomyolysis. So we touched on this maybe a year ago now, that rhabdomyolysis was a problem at these higher doses, but the company was moving forward with the 300 milligram bid dose, and the safety here was pretty reasonable. So it made sense to me that the company's gonna move forward with this, they're still gonna see efficacy and the safety signals will be minimized. But the FDA is concerned here. But what I wanna point out is that the safety signals that came out here in the 300 mg bid dose are way less than what the safety signals came out in Megrolimab. They had about 30% of patients with severe anemia problems and yet the FDA did end up resolving the clinical hold. Probably rhabdomyolysis is more serious than anemia, but with only 3.8% of patients getting a signal at the 300 milligram bid dose, I think it's gonna be all right. This is the AML MDS studies and not the lymphoma studies in particular, but I think they're gonna take this into consideration to assess that the drug is okay to proceed. So I'm fully expecting that the FDA is going to lift the clinical hold after Curious is able to provide the safety and efficacy data that they want. So I think I'm gonna take a position in Curious or add to my existing position because I think it's a great opportunity here. In terms of what we can expect, obviously this puts a hamper on all of these timelines. The VISTA timeline is probably intact, but everything related to Emibusertib is gonna be delayed by a quarter or two. And if the Gilead situation is any indication, we can expect that Curious is gonna get an answer in around two months, and I assume it's gonna be okay and that they're gonna be able to resume enrollment for these studies. Now, it's unfortunate that it puts a delay on everything, but I think the company will rally after this, and as we start to get more efficacy data, I think it will bode in favor of Curious. So that's the Curious situation. Uh, definitely unfortunate, but I am gonna to add to this position given that the stock is trading below cash at this point. The next company I wanna talk about is Checkpoint Therapeutics, ticker symbol CKPT, and they are trading at around 140 cents per share, giving them a market cap of $130 million. Their Q4 2021 net assets sit at 30 million, and their Q4 net loss was 30 million. This was a, an anomaly. Usually their quarterly burn is around 10 million, but it still is a bit of a concern that we're getting pretty close to running out of cash here. But the company is developing a compound called cosibelumab for the treatment of metastatic cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, locally advanced cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, as well as non-small cell lung cancer. And for those who haven't been following this, cosibelumab is an anti-PDL1 drug. It's in this class of immuno-oncology compounds that have been made famous by Keytruda and Updevo a number of years ago. But where cosibelumab is trying to come in here is they are hoping to get the compound approved in these indications 
and come in at a much more affordable price point, which just isn't the case at the moment with the large pharma companies that are pricing this drug upwards of $150,000 to $200,000 per patient. So what the CEO is confident in is that given the size of Checkpoint, the overhead that they have is that they'll be able to competitively price the drug that will make it very compelling for payers to go with cosibelumab rather than an existing PD-1, PD-L1 drug that is at a much higher price. So that's the one of the strategies that the company is looking at. What we heard in January is that Checkpoint announced positive top-line results from the registration-enabling trial of cosibelumab in metastatic cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. The study met the primary endpoint of a 47.4% objective response rate. They say that safety and tolerability were consistent with previous data and that they were planning a BLA submission for later this year. They recently had a call on an investor day. I forget what the firm was, but on there was James Oliviero. I think it was a Fortress Bio Investor Day, now that I think of it. And James Oliviero was on there talking about Checkpoint. He gave some interesting insight on why he's confident that Cosibelumab will get approved and why it's going to do well in the market. So the first thing was that he told everyone that the FDA had a benchmark for them in order to get registrational approval, and it was to hit that lower bound of the 95% confidence interval, which he says was 25% or higher. And Cosibelumab did hit that very easily at 47.4%, so that's great news. And then in terms of other trials that they have going on, they're also looking at locally advanced cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, and the company is far enough where they can actually do an interim analysis that's going to take place in mid-2022. And if it's positive, if things look good, they're hoping to include that in the BLA submission, which will increase the patient population that Cosibelumab can reach quite a bit. And so he mentioned that their discussions with the FDA have also been very supportive of their trial design for locally advanced cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. So I think that that's great news. And then interestingly, they also talked about the scintillimab outcome that recently occurred. There was a, an advisory committee over scintillimab, which their trials were exclusively in China. And also they were looking at primarily the progression-free survival endpoint. And they also used a chemotherapy as the control arm in the study. So the advisory committee voted against approval for scintillimab, which is another immuno-oncology drug in this class. And they cited those three reasons as why this is an issue. But what James Oliviero mentioned on the call is that the cosibelumab non-small cell lung trial, and I should clarify that the scintillimab decision was specifically for the indication of non-small cell lung cancer. And so the cosibelumab NSCLC trial is a multi-regional trial. It's not just China-centric, which the scintillimab one was. They're also looking at overall survival, which is really the gold standard primary endpoint in these later stage oncology trials. And this differs from scintillimab because it was focused on progression-free survival. And now the last one that I'm not sure about, and maybe I should get James Liverio back on the site, back on the show, is that the scintillimab trial went against a chemotherapy regimen, but the advisory committee said that that's no longer the standard of care, and that the standard of care is in fact a PD-1 or PD-L1 drug for these patients. So they should be comparing to that instead. 
And this was cited as a reason why they weren't going to recommend approval here. Now, the cosibelumab trial is going against a chemotherapeutic regimen as the standard of care. So is this going to be a problem for the FDA if cosibelumab has nice results in this trial and Checkpoint goes to get approval? We're not sure because those other two factors do favor approval of cosibelumab because it's multi-regional and they're focusing on overall survival. But this third one, I don't know if it's something we need to be worried about, but it's something I would like to ask James Liviero. And then he also mentions that they're planning a conversation with the FDA. So that's likely to occur soon. And if there are any changes that need to be taking place, at least it's early enough in the trial that they could change things around and it probably won't affect the outcome too much. So hopefully they can get that squared away as soon as possible. Um, another thing that came up that I thought was interesting is that James Lerio mentioned that they're in discussions for a regional partnership deal. So I think that the compounds at a place now where they have this good data, they're expecting approval, but they don't want to be the one to actually do the commercial launch in, say, Europe. So they're going to bring on a commercial partner that has an established team, hopefully established relationships so that they can get some kind of royalty deal in place where they'll make some money off the sales in a foreign country. So it's nice to see that other partners are interested in Cosabellumab, and hopefully those discussions will progress. So we might have some bullish news associated with that soon. And then the last thing I want to mention is that Regeneron has a PDUFA for Libtio plus chemotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer, which is happening on September 19th of this year. And this is kind of interesting. It gives us a bit of a gauge on the FDA's feeling on approvals for NSCLC for other PD-1s. I think Libtio it's already approved, but plus the chemotherapy, we'll see what they do with that. But uh, that's another interesting thing to note. So in terms of upcoming catalysts, the big thing that I'm looking forward to is more data because they've only given us the objective response rate and they've given us no insight into safety. And the company said that they're going to provide more information at a scientific meeting. So hopefully that gets scheduled soon. Um, for safety, I think expectations are pretty high. They say that they're in line with the previous results that we've seen, but you know, what does that really mean? I think we need a lot more granularity there before we get a taste of whether or not this can be a compelling differentiator against existing PD-1s or PD-L1s. And then regarding the complete response rate, I don't think expectations are that high because it wasn't touted in the initial top line data. Another thing to look forward to is the interim locally advanced cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma analysis. I think if this is very positive, it bodes very well for the company. And then we also want to see the BLA submission that should be happening pretty soon in the next couple months. And then I should have put here as well, but a potential partner that comes in to do the commercial efforts for Cosabellumab in Europe. I think that's another thing that we can look forward to. So I'm still long the company. I'm hurting right now because it's gone down quite a bit since the early January timeframe. But I think a number of companies have been going down in that same way, but we need this bullish stuff to come through soon so that we can get a bit of relief here. So I'd like to add to my position, but I might wait a little bit longer until we get closer to the middle of 2022. All right, the last story I wanna talk about is this Sierra Oncology acquisition from GSK. And the press release reads that GSK reaches an agreement to acquire late stage biopharmaceutical company Sierra Oncology for 1.9 billion. It's nice to see an acquisition in the space and we did see another acquisition I think like a week ago, a company called Checkmate Therapeutics, I don't own any of the stock, unfortunately, 
and would have been nice if it was checkpoint therapeutics, but we'll have to wait a little bit longer for that, I think. Anyway, for the Sierra Oncology deal, they bought the company for $55 per share in common stock in cash, representing a total equity of $1.9 billion. And the reason why there's a discrepancy here is I think there's a number of warrants that need to be bought out or made whole. So the company's trading at a $1.3 billion market cap, and then I assume there's another $600 million in warrants that need to be settled. So that's why there's a discrepancy there. The company was trading at $30 per share after their positive phase three release, and that was a $715 million market cap. And then before the phase three data release, it was $20 a share or $450 million market cap. So I think these are interesting gauges to look at as we're going to compare this to say another company that before the phase three release, 450 million, after it was around 715 million, and then bought out for 1.9. So kind of interesting there. And the press release from their positive readout in phase three was that in January of 2022, they announced positive top line data from the Momentum phase three trial. The study met all of its primary and key secondary endpoints, demonstrating that momolotinib achieve statistically significant and clinically meaningful benefit on symptoms, splenic response, and anemia. And so what is Sierra Oncology trying to do? Their current assets sit at 296 million. This was after all the offerings and the warrant exercises in Q1. And they're developing momolotinib for myelofibrosis. And this would be in second line because the first line treatments are actually quite good at improving the issues associated with myelofibrosis, but the prevalence is actually pretty small. It's only around 15,000 in the USA, and this is from the company's corporate presentation. When I actually Googled different articles that show the prevalence of this, it actually came in quite a bit lower. The company estimates a total addressable market of 3 billion, which I also thought was a bit high, but then when I looked at the data or the revenue from Jacafi, which is a JAK inhibitor that's been on the market for myelofibrosis for a while, they're bringing in like $2 billion per year. So it must be in line with that and they must be charging quite a premium for this compound. Like I mentioned, the first line treatments are JAK inhibitors. Myelofibrosis is a bone marrow cancer and it seems to be driven primarily by mutations that overactivate the JAK stat pathway. So companies have come up with these targeted solutions, Jacafi or Inrebic, that can inhibit the JAK pathway and this improves outcomes quite a bit. One of the issues though, is that when they're treated with these, it can sometimes exacerbate anemia in these patients, which is already a problem with myelofibrosis. So there's a real unmet need here because patients that need to take Jacafi, they become transfusion dependent or they need other drugs like hydroxyurea to help stimulate red blood cell production. So there's a real unmet need here of a agent that can treat the cancer and also improve the anemia situation. And this is where momolotinib really came in and is able to help with those side effects. So momolotinib on a molecular standpoint, it inhibits the JAK pathway, but also this other pathway, ACVR1 and ALK2. And this pathway the company believes is significant to improve anemia in patients. So patients that have severe anemia after taking Jacafi, they can move to momolotinib and a lot of them do get an improvement in their anemia side effects. And so this is what the company set out to do in their momentum trial. And to give a bit of background on this compound momolotinib, 
It was previously owned by Gilead through the acquisition of a company called YM Biosciences, which is a Canadian company. And what Gilead tried to do is compete against Jacafi for those first line patients, but superiority was not demonstrated in their simplified two phase three trial. And to get into a little bit more detail here, the simplified two phase three trial was momolotinib against best available treatment and 88% of those patients that were on best available treatment received Jacafi. And here they failed to show significant improvement in the proportion of patients achieving a 35% or more reduction in spleen volume at 24 weeks. So Gilead shelved the compound until Sierra came around and decided to license it from them for $3 million. And I think the price at which Gilead paid was close to 500 million and then they licensed it for only $3 million. I think there's some milestones where Gilead stands to make some more money, but they definitely lost out on that deal. And so Sierra focused exclusively on developing it as a second-line treatment, and they got the green light from the FDA to compare it to Danazol, which I guess is used in improving anemia or something. So they got that green light, they did the Momentum Phase 3 study, and then they got this positive top-line data, followed by the acquisition from GSK. So pretty interesting story here, and... Like I said, I was a little surprised at this because I didn't think myelofibrosis was a pretty interesting market because it only had around 15,000 patient population. But like I said, when I looked at the revenue numbers here, I think Insight, Incusight or something is the name of the company, but $2.1 billion in 2021 revenue, and that's up 10% year over year. And the compounds improved for myelofibrosis, polycythemia vera, and they recently got approval for acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease. So the molecule is starting to garner more indications here. And what I think GSK is going to do is look to use this as potentially an add-on in other oncology spheres to get more indications for it. And the fact that it improves anemia could be pretty useful in other blood cancers where oftentimes one of the side effects of the treatment is thrombocytopenia or anemia. And I just talked about the issues with CD47 targeting drugs having that problem. So potentially momolotinib could come in here and help out in that situation. And I think GSK might look to capitalize on that. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is I want to compare it to what we're seeing in Carrier Farm. And the reason for this is that Carrier Farm is studying Selenexor in myelofibrosis at the moment. And for those who haven't been following Carrier Farm, price is trading at around $7.2 per share giving them a market cap of $570 million with an enterprise value of $460 million. So Expobio is approved in multiple myeloma as well as uh, later stage DLBCL, I believe, and they're seeking other indications, one of them being myelofibrosis. And so I want to compare what Carrier Farms data shows right now for Expobio in this indication to what Sierra Oncology showed. And so what we see here, in ASHA 2021, they presented interim data of Selenexor treatment in refractory patients that were treated with Jacafi before. And what they see here in the small patient population is that four out of 10 of them achieved a splenic volume reduction of 35% or greater at 24 weeks. And this compares quite nicely to momolotinib. And I think I have it here. Yeah, just let me pull it up here. So in the momentum trial, the proportion of patients that achieved a splenic reduction of 35% at week 24 was only 23%. So Expovio is looking pretty competitive on an efficacy standpoint. 
And then when we look at duration of response, Expovio is also looking pretty good, median duration of 11 months with quite a range here, but the study is an interim analysis. So happy to see that as well. And then when it comes to transfusion independence, 50% of patients improved their hemoglobin or achieved transfusion independence after being treated with Expovio when they had myelofibrosis. And then they say here that two out of five patients that were transfusion dependent became transfusion independent once they started taking Expovio. And comparing this to the momentum study, the readout was transfusion independence for over 12 weeks at week 24 when they're on momolotinib, and this was 31%. So Expovio compares decently well to momolotinib, even though it's Expovio and it's got a lot of issues associated with it that I've touched on in other trials, in other videos. But I think here it shows that Carrier Farm does have something interesting with Expovio and that if they can show positive data moving forward, you know, companies are interested in oncology in such a way that they're willing to buy out a company that only has good data in myelofibrosis. So I'm going through this to suggest that Carrier Farm might be overlooked here and they actually have phase one results, the totality of that data coming out in the second half of this year with top line phase two results coming in 2023. So the 2023 readout, it's obviously a long ways away and I don't love that. But phase one results, if they're particularly positive, I think could bode very well for the company. And that's what I got for you guys today. In terms of stuff we just saw, uh, I already touched on BioXL. They had that PDUFA date on April 5th. Replimune had a, an investor day event. Stock didn't move too much, but for me, Replimune's really like a buy and hold forever kind of stock. I think they're gonna be the leader for Oncolytics for quite a while. So I'm content to just hold them and not focus too much on the, the trading aspect. From what I'm looking forward to, PDSB has a readout coming up. Curis, the resolution of the clinical hold, I think is gonna happen. Cyclerion has MELAS data in Q2. Biogen has Lacanumab data in Q3. And we saw a bit of a bid happen with Biogen in the last little while since the final decision came down from Medicaid or from Medicare. And then Achieve Life Sciences, the ORCA2 data readout should be happening pretty soon. Just to do a quick look at the portfolio here, we've definitely been hurting, I think everybody has. I did make a lot of moves in the last little while. So I sold Madrigal, I bought BioXL and then sold it all. I sold Hepion, and then I covered my short in Viking Therapeutics. I bought Replimune, and then I also bought Achieve Life Sciences. Those are the only moves I've made so far. But in the short term, I think I'm going to add to Curis. I'm going to add to KOD before the Q3 readout. Probably going to add to Checkpoint as well before we get into the second half of the year. The rest, I'm not sure about. And obviously, I've waited so long to cut some of these. SIO gene therapies, you know, they've had a huge shakeout in the last little while with the CEO gone and they cut the Parkinson's disease program. And uh, yeah, I need to, to refocus my attention on some of these losers and cut them or add to them. So overall, we're at negative 17 for the year. And this is actually better than the XBI and the ARC-G, if you can believe that. I'm sitting pretty with IBB right now, which is fine by me, but we are struggling compared to a lot of the major indices in the sector. And part of that might be because a lot of my portfolio is cash right now. My biggest positions are Biogen, Achieve, uh, Regenix Bio and ALX Oncology. 
ALX Oncology is one that I also want to add to, even though their catalysts right now are a little bit thin, but I do think that they're going to get a lot of interest from large pharma given the M&A activity surrounding CD47s. So I'm going to wrap it up there, but I want to thank everybody for your attention. Let me know what you think in the comments. I covered a number of companies here today. Uh, let me know where you think I'm off and I'm happy to engage. Send me an email, matthewlapoire at gmail.com or send me a tweet at matthewlapoire. So thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time.